Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can open to Acts chapter 2. We'll be in Acts chapter 2, primarily spending our time in verses 37 through 47. So Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47 is where we'll spend the majority of our time today. Before um, we dive into God's Word, let me give you uh, our aim for today's sermon, and then I'll pray briefly for the preaching of the Word. Our aim today is that we, Grace Church, would look to Jesus, treasure Him, repent of our sins, believe the Gospel, and worship God with our whole life. So let me, let me restate that. Grace Church, we are to look to Jesus, treasure Him, repent of our sins, believe the Gospel, and worship God with our whole life. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into Acts chapter 2. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray that your gospel would come today, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, Look with me in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. Grace Church, hear the word of God. Now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Well, perhaps this is a familiar text to many of us, and we have looked here oftentimes as an example of what the early church should look like. Here in the text, we have um, several pieces of um, very important steps that the early church took. One, we have the sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost, where 
literally thousands are converted. And instantly the church has good dilemmas. Uh, we, we, we joked about this last night as some of us had gathered together for a fellowship. But could you imagine uh, what it was like for the apostles to suddenly have 3,000 new souls to care for? Um, what an overwhelming sense they must have felt as they considered that prospect. And the, the church as a whole um, was responsible to now disciple these young Christian who had recently been converted. What a good dilemma they must have faced. And following that, we see the life of the church. The church come alive with several purposes that we see played out. And really, that's where we want to begin to steer in the next two months uh, our sermon series. The aim of this series that we begin today and will conclude at the end of August is twofold. We want to, one, investigate according to God's Word if we are truly a Jesus-treasuring church. What does God's Word have to say about the church? And what does it look like to be a church that treasures Jesus above all else? So that's number one. Number two, we want to revitalize. We want to see the church be made healthy the way that God desires for the church to be healthy. So in prayer, we want to plead with God to make us healthy again. So I am, in a sense, communicating something by stating those two aims. Investigate and revitalize. And what I'm communicating is this. We're not as healthy, excuse me, as healthy as we may believe that we are. And at the root of our unhealth is a lack of love to Christ. So we're not as healthy as we think we are, and at the root of that is a lack of love for Christ. To be a healthy church, the church must truly treasure Jesus Christ above all else. I think you've heard this said from this pulpit. I have it in my notes from a Jordan Thomas sermon, so I'm going to repeat something that he said before. If Christ is not treasured above all else, he's not treasured at all. If Christ is not treasured above all else, He's not treasured at all. So what does life in a Jesus-treasuring church look like? What are we to look like as a church if we are truly treasuring Jesus Christ? If a church is treasuring Jesus above all else, then it will function according to God's Word with the purpose that God intended for the church to function. So let me ask another question. What is the purpose of the church. What is the purpose of the church? Well, what we intend to do over the next several weeks, as I said, to the end of August, there'll be a couple of other sermons sprinkled in there, is to walk through this text in Acts, Acts chapter 2 and communicate the five purposes of the church. And I believe that there are five that we can find here in the text that I read to us this morning. What are the church's priorities in Scripture according to God's Word? We want to keep going back to God's Word and measuring again and again ourselves according to God's Word. And I believe there are five primary purposes of the church revealed in Scripture. I'll name those now, and these are the titles of the sermons that are to come. Number one is worship and prayer. Number two, learning and discipleship. Number three, Fellowship and community. Number four, outreach and evangelism. 
And then number five, mercy and social concern. So you see those are paired together in five categories. And we intend to look at those in the days ahead. The sermon that has been assigned for this morning is worship and prayer. Worship and prayer. And because the five purposes of the church are clearly set forth in Scripture, we walk back through Acts chapter 2, and that's what we will be doing over the next several weeks. You'll see those raised from the text. You'll see these five purposes that are clearly set forth in Scripture. And if they're set forth in Scripture, then we have to agree that they're non-negotiable, that the church should look like this, that these are priorities for the ministry of the church. And that any church, anywhere, any time in history should look the same way. If it is truly a Jesus-treasuring, biblically sound church. All churches in all cultural contexts must always make these purposes a priority. These purposes should also be seen as vital signs of a healthy church. When one or more of these purposes are neglected, then the church inevitably becomes unhealthy. So again, let me ask the question, how do we see Grace Church? Or let me state it more pointedly, how do we see Grace Church restored to health? If we're not healthy according to God's Word, then how do we see ourselves restored to health? That's what we want to look at this morning. The reality is that we can't fix ourselves by simply listing out these five purposes that I listed out a minute ago and then developing some well-crafted plan to carry out these purposes. Trust me, that's been tried over and over and over in the centuries. You can't just go to God's Word, look at these five purposes that we've now communicated and say, all right, now let's figure out what our plan is. Let's let's have a well-crafted plan. And let's find ways to... Um, infuse in the life of the body these purposes. Let's, let's, let's have sign-up sheets and let's get people involved carrying out these five purposes. Now, I'm not opposed to strategy. That's not what I'm saying. But if that's all there is to it, our strategizing then will never become the church that God has called us to be. So in Acts chapter 2, we have for us this example. This example of these five purposes being lived out. And why the church in Acts chapter 2 was immediately infused with real health, we have to turn to God's Word. We have to go and investigate, as we said. So let us hear afresh the words of Peter at Pentecost. Now let's not forget these pieces that we have. Often we, we separate Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following as, look at this example that the church is. And we forget that that example that we find in Acts chapter 2 follows this great sermon that Peter preached. So let's give some attention to Peter's sermon. Let's see why the church was treasuring Jesus Christ and having these five purposes acted upon. I think it begins, Peter's sermon, with this one thing. The certainty of Christ's person. The certainty of what, excuse me, who Christ is and what he has accomplished. 
Look with me back in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. It says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter continues, verse 32 and 33. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And then verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, it's no accident that the clear preaching of Jesus and the Gospel precedes the visible health of the early church. Listen again to Peter's language. He's trying to communicate something to the crowd. Verse 22, he says, just as you yourselves know. He's saying, you know this to be true. And then again in verse 32, to which we are all witnesses. You know it's true because you witnessed it. And then again in verse 36, he says, let all the house of Israel know for certain. This is certain. You must know this. See, there's something that Peter is trying to get the people to know. To be certain in. To remember that they were eyewitnesses of. There's something that Peter was trying to draw their attention to. And I believe that the reason so many souls were added to the kingdom that day was because his hearers believed with certainty, that Christ was indeed who Peter was saying that He was. In fact, the listeners that day, listen to me, were wrecked by Peter's words. They got messed up. Verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, the preaching of Jesus Christ, that Peter preached to them, it says this, they were pierced, to the heart. The crowd was pierced to the heart. They were devastated. They were ruined by what Peter had said. They were totally ruined. Their lives were ruined by what was just communicated to them. Now can you imagine, they've all gathered together and Peter preaches these simple but true words about Jesus Christ. He's simply reminding them of who Christ was and what Christ had accomplished on their behalf. And as a result, they're ruined. Their lives were ruined. Ruined of their own plans. Ruined of their own desires. Ruined 
of their own purpose, but ruined to a new and higher purpose. They were suddenly enthralled with Jesus. A man who, just days earlier, they were so glad to crucify. Now, they're enthralled with Jesus. They're enamored, not mystically, but to the depths of their soul, radically changed within by Jesus. Christ suddenly became supreme in their hearts. They were pierced with a new affection. Listen to me. Grace Church, we can never stop being ruined in a good way by the Gospel. We can't become so familiar with the Gospel that it does not ruin us. We can't become comfortable with the reality that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins and rose from the grave as was prayed today. We're united with Christ. Our sins died with Him as was prayed. They were left in the tomb and we were raised to walk in newness of life. Listen to me. That ruins who you were. That kills the old man. We are now something new. And if we can, in our newness, become content and lackadaisical, then we've totally mistaken what Christ accomplished on the cross. We've forgotten what the Gospel really is about. Like the early church, we must totally be submitted with Jesus to the degree that our hearts are pierced with an unshakable love. It's not something that you ever rebound from. Your life has been wrecked through faith in Christ. This is not some emotional moment where our feelings got the best of us and that we'll someday soon return to the normal routine of our comfortable lives. Listen to me. If you can go back to the old life, then you haven't met Christ. You met some form of Christ that you've created in your mind. You may have had some religious moment, but listen to me. If you've truly met Christ, you could never go back. Your life has been wrecked. It's been ruined. It'll never be the same. Listen to me. Thousands of people were wounded by Christ on that day. They were wounded. The language that Scripture used is clear. It says their hearts were pierced. Listen to me. If your heart is pierced, you've been wounded unto death. You will die. If somebody right now took a knife and stabbed you in your heart, you will die. Listen to me. That's exactly what Christ has done to us. He's wounded our hearts mortally. And the old man will die. The old man will die. But from that grave, just as Christ rose from the grave in power, So we too, if wounded in our heart by Christ, will raise. And a new man will appear. God's Word says in Ephesians chapter 4, we'll put on the new self, which is Christ. Galatians 2 reminds us 
that we are to no longer live the life that we used to live, but now we live, it's Christ in us. We are wounded by Christ and for Christ. And we'll never recover from looking upon Jesus. So how do we respond to this wounding of our hearts? Another question. If this is really what's taken place, if Christ has really wounded us like that through faith in Him, then how now must we live? And I believe that's where we pick up in today's text. So not only do we have what Christ has done to us, but now we have how we should respond to that. And I think we find here the clarity of the church's purpose. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? The response was to ask, what must we do? As Peter preaches Christ, as he explains to the crowd the gospel, and their hearts are pierced, they respond. Now listen to me. They're not asking an intellectual question here. I think that's where we so often go wrong as a church. We, we become so intellectual, and we have our theology all squared away in its categories in God's Word. Listen to me. That's not what's taking place on this day at Pentecost. People are wrecked, and their response is not... All right, so now, what should we do? Are there classes that I should attend? Do I need to get these things in order? That's not how this goes down. They, in agony, cry out to the apostles. What shall we do? The wound was so deep that the people wanted relief from the agony that the wound caused they're pierced they're in agony and they're pleading with the apostles tell us now what we must do help us so peter does verse 38 peter said to them you're in agony your heart has been pierced repent and each of you be baptized in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified, listen to this, and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Peter pleads with them to do the only thing that they could do. Repent. Repent. These repentant listeners of the gospel are glorifying God in this moment because they are treasuring Jesus Christ. Worship of Jesus begins here. We must be confronted with Jesus. Repent of ourselves and believe in Him. And that's exactly what's taking place in Acts chapter 2. We must be wounded by Christ before we will ever see Him as our greatest treasure. But once this Great saving work that Jesus has accomplished for us begins to happen in a man's heart. As it did for those present at Pentecost. Listen to me. We will become true worshipers of Jesus Christ. We will worship Him 
in spirit and truth. We will worship Jesus, the very one, as Peter would say, whom you crucified. It is here in this moment of repentance that the church is not only being formed, but it is also carrying out immediately the very purposes to which it's been called. It's amazing that it's all compact into this one chapter. True worship of God has begun. Worshippers of Jesus were produced. And so was the first purpose of the church. Well, I said that the assignment of today was to preach to you on worship and prayer, but I just couldn't see how we could get there without seeing Acts chapter 2 for what it was. This grand event that has taken place. This terrible wounding that Christ has done to the hearts of so many in this day. And praise be to God that He's done to so many in this room. The first purpose of the church is to worship God through Jesus Christ. So what do we mean by worship? If we're going to keep throwing this term out, let's, let's help ourselves by defining it. Worship is this. I think we find this in Scripture, and it's not always a good thing. Honor paid to a superior being. To give homage, honor, reverence, respect, adoration, praise, or glory to a superior being. The word itself, this is why I said it's not always a good thing, is not a holy word. Because often we find in Scripture people worshiping something other than the one true God. There's all kinds of worshipers that we find in Scripture, and we know that they exist today. And not everybody who worships is worshiping the one true God. Everybody worships something, but not everybody worships God. But as believers, all of our worship is due God because He alone is worthy of our worship. I believe today's text gives us multiple insights into the character of what true worship is. So I want to talk to you this morning about four aspects or four parts of worship, or maybe four, better said like this, four descriptions of what biblical, of Christ-treasuring worship looks like. Number one is this, true worship. Worship in the Spirit is this. It's whole life worship. W-H-O-L-E. Whole life worship. And though we do gather to worship God each Sunday, Scripture makes it clear that worship is more than what we do for two hours on a Sunday morning. Worship is a way of life. Look with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is what it says about those who had been wounded by Christ that day. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. To pay honor to a superior being, our whole life must exemplify the, the value of this superior being. If we truly treasure Jesus above all else, then our whole life, our whole life, not 90% of the aspects of our life, but our whole life, the whole of it, will communicate that Christ is our greatest treasure. Our whole life. Let me say it again. Our whole life 
will reflect that we treasure Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, the early church, it says, were continually, continually devoting themselves to God. Continual devotion. When does continual devotion end? If it's continual? Never. When does it become hap-hearted? If it's devotion? Never. Continual devotion. That's what it says about the early church. That's whole life worship. Worship is a continual life of devotion to God. Romans 12.1, which we read in the service, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, right? What are the mercies of God? The cross of Jesus Christ. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What's worship? Giving your whole life in holiness to God. That's what worship is. According to Romans 12, the only acceptable worship to God is the whole of your life. So let me ask you, let's apply, let's be honest with God. Is your whole life of worship of God? Is your whole life worship of God? I don't stand in front of you this morning as one who can condemn you. I'm not preaching down to you. I'm just reminding you what I've been reminded of very clearly this week. The reason that this church is not healthy is because this man has not given his whole life to Christ the way that I see reflected in Acts chapter 2. I find aspects of my life that I've tucked away, that I've reserved for myself. Is your whole life worship of God? Or do you have aspects of your life that are reserved for you? But let's be careful not to make worship something less than what Scripture describes it to be. But let's go to God who is full of grace, who is full of mercy, that was demonstrated by His Son Jesus on the cross. It's been prayed today. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And it is sin when our whole life is not given to God in worship. But let's go to Him. Let's ask Him to expose us the way Peter's sermon exposed the crowd that day. Let's be pierced again. And let's give our whole life to Christ. So we have whole life worship. Number two, I want us to see corporate gathering worship. Corporate gathering worship. We want to look more closely at the corporate example that we find in Acts chapter 2. 2.42, again it says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. See, the worship of the early church definitely had a corporate form to it. There was a gathering together that we can't miss in Acts chapter 2. Worship of the early church had corporate form. Paul literally says they devoted themselves, listen to these two phrases. 
here in verse 42, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, for whatever reason, I'm not sure what your version says, but prayer, as it's translated in the New American Standard that I'm reading for from this morning, is not the proper translation. The Greek is plural there. It's prayers. There is a difference in those two words. This is almost certainty a reference to liturgy of some form in the life of the early church immediately upon its inception to the service of the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread together, and the discipline of praying what Scripture calls the prayers. They are praying together. It's It was expected in their gatherings that those two things would happen, that they would break bread and that they would give time in prayer. This obviously lends itself to a formal time of praying together, which is why if you're new to grace this morning, if not, you've been here for a while, now you understand why we intend and why we set aside time for extended prayer in our time together on Sundays. You may, you may find it odd that we would, for 25 minutes in the middle of a service, pray together. But the early church didn't find it odd. They prayed. It was not random. There was an order to this breaking of bread and prayer. And listen to me. It is very much why we gather on Sundays to corporately worship King Jesus together. And we see these corporate aspects, and I'm going to save some of those for future sermons in this series. Won't dive through them all, but you'll see that everything that transpires in Acts 40, uh, chapter 2, 42 and below has corporate aspects to it. Worship was clearly part of that. Prayer was clearly part of that. But I want you to see a third description of worship that we find here in Acts chapter 2. I I call it in-home worship. It's the informal aspect of worship that we find in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 46. It says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, that's a corporate gathering, and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now, I don't have to describe to you, and I don't think times have changed from the early church till today. If you gather in someone's home, it's going to be less formal than when you gather in the temple or you gather in this location here as we have gathered. It's going to be more informal. But it doesn't mean that worship still shouldn't take place. As a matter of fact, when God's people gather, worship should always be taking place. I can't see how two believers can gather together and not fellowship and worship. It's impossible. It's impossible, especially if they are both treasuring Jesus Christ as they ought to be. Notice they were not only gathering in the temple corporately, but worship was taking place from house to house. It is here we find smaller gatherings of God's people worshiping Jesus together. Now, from house to house could mean a lot of things. It could refer either to each individual family within the church worshiping God in its own home, which I very much believe in, or that families were gathering together to break bread together. Certainly, this encompasses both. And I believe this text encourages us to that end. 
We should be disciplined in private family worship and in the breaking of bread with other believers in our home. Listen to me. I cannot fathom in my mind being a member of any local body of believers and those two things not happening. That I would not desire as a husband and father to lead my own home in worship. That there wouldn't be some semblance of worship in the home. How can we get up, eat breakfast, go about our day, come back, entertain ourselves, have dinner, and go to bed. And there'd be no mention of Christ in the home. I just can't fathom that. I can't fathom how we could pretend that we're healthy if that's what life in our home looks like. And I can't fathom not having a desire to gather with other believers. So listen to me. Whether you live in Forest City, Arkansas, which some of our members do, or you live in, where's Tyler Up Church? Somerville? What, what's, what's the actual? Oakland, Tennessee. I think that may be our two furthest members in different directions. And I know the further you are, the harder it makes it to gather more frequently. But listen to me. Church. Have people in your home and worship God together. Break bread together. Share a meal. Fellowship and worship God. And it goes across the board. There's there's nobody that that doesn't apply to. We should all be having in-home worship. For the worship of God, open your homes to others. God has called the church to this purpose to live a life of worship to Him. That includes the corporate gathering and in-home worship. But I want you to see the final description I think that we find in Acts chapter 2 that I think is the heart of true worship. Yes, our whole life is to be given in worship. Yes, there is a corporate gathering aspect. Yes, we should have worship in our homes. But I think the final description tells us what kind of worship it should be. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Listen to what it says. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Finally, I want us to look at verse 43 together as we conclude our consideration of worship and prayer as one purpose of the church. One of the five. I said earlier, worship as we see it laid out for us in Acts chapter 2, is not this emotional moment where our feelings simply get the best of us. But I do want us to see in God's Word and understand the truth of worship according to Scripture. Genuine worship of God, listen to me, it does produce emotions. It does produce feelings. According to verse 30. Excuse me, 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. That's not my perception, that's God's Word. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. 
If God does not awe you, A-W-E, then you're not worshiping God. God must awe you. We find in Scripture many examples of an awful God. A-W-E, F-U-L. Awful. Men are killed before an awful God. Men lay themselves prostrate and beg for mercy in front of an awful God. And we have page after page after page of examples of His awesomeness, His miracles, His wonders that some of are mentioned here in Acts chapter 2. We could, we could go around the room and everybody in the room could list one example of God's awesomeness in Scripture and we wouldn't begin to exhaust, not even close, the awesomeness of God that we find in His Word. It is impossible to worship God without feeling. Specifically, without feeling the awe of God. Worship of God is not a cold transfer of facts about who He is. We must be moved by the reality of God each Sunday. We must be moved by the reality of God in our homes. We must be moved by the reality of God. If your emotions are never stirred by, listen to what Peter preached. Listen to what he said to the crowd who had just been a part of the crucifixion of God, of Jesus on the cross. This is what Peter says to them. Can you imagine the emotions, the, the sense of all that they felt as Peter preached? Peter said, the man, that's Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. Do you think that that shook the people who stood in Peter's midst that day? Do you think they felt an awe that this act that they had committed was a part of God's predetermined plan? That God had the foreknowledge to send His Son Jesus on the cross to be crucified for their sins? Do you think their awareness that day created a sense of awe in their hearts? It absolutely did. What about this one? The God who raised Jesus up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. Be reminded that the crowd just had Jesus Christ crucified. And then they see the tomb is empty. They see a resurrected body, actual body, still marked with the piercings. He's alive. And it was impossible for death to hold him down. His power was greater. Do you think they had a sense of awe as Peter preached the resurrected Jesus Christ to them? The reality that Jesus was alive? Do you think there was an allness in them? What about this one? This Jesus, God raised up. He's staying on the resurrection theme. To which we are all witnesses. You know it to be true. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God. Where is Jesus now? At the right hand of God. 
He holds the highest place. We sing about it. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Not only is Jesus at the right hand, the most exalted place that created allness in the crowd, but listen to me, the Holy Spirit rained down. Can you imagine the life of God in the souls of those men that day? That's why they were pierced to the heart. Something that these earthen vessels couldn't contain had entered them. The Holy Spirit of God. This treasure. Jesus Christ was now in them. Do you think they had a sense of awe? Absolutely, they did. What about this one? Peter's words. That God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Master and Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. See, Peter reminded them. This is what you did. But this is what Jesus has done for you. This is who He is. He's now your Lord. And He is your Messiah. He is the one who came to save you. There most certainly had to be emotions, feelings, a sense of awe that accompanied that. Listen to me. If your emotions aren't stirred by Jesus Christ, Him crucified, resurrected, at the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit sent down, then you're not a follower of Christ. You are outside of the salvation that God provides for us, that Peter exhorted those to believe in that day. True worship of God is all-filled worship. So let me finish with this. Grace Church, look to Jesus. Treasure Him. Repent of your sins. Believe the Gospel. And worship God with the whole of your life. Let's pray. Father, we need help. We confess according to Your Word we're not a healthy church. That Christ, though He is supreme, though He is the head of the church, Father, we confess that He's not always supreme in our hearts here. We want to repent of that. We want to repent of that together. Father, we confess that we're not healthy because Christ, Christ is not treasured the way that He ought to be treasured. That too often our life is not wholly given to You in worship. That we lack the sense of all that Your church should have when we hear the name of Christ named as we consider what He's accomplished on our behalf. Father, forgive us. Help us to not be comfortable with this reality. Father, let us always be like the people who sat and heard the sermon at Pentecost, that our hearts would remain pierced, that we would remain uncomfortable, that we would cry out in agony for you to come to us. 
to forgive us of our sins and, Father, to make us holy men. Father, make us to be what the church ought to be. Lord, revitalize us. Revive our hearts. Oh God, we beg, we plead, we ask. And I know I'm the voice of one man, but I speak for us all. Lord, help us as a church to be the kind of church that you've called us to be. In spirit, in truth, in practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.